Well, good morning from me to you. I'm very glad to be here today. We're working your pastor actually a little harder than uh, he's working me on his way to Iowa. Did you know that Lawrence, Kansas is on the way to Iowa? So he's preaching for me right now at this very moment. And he also presided. And early in our service, we give 75 minutes to our morning worship. I don't know what that means about you guys, but that gives time for him to tell a little bit of a story about what God has been doing in uh, Stillwater and Enid and Oklahoma City and all the new action in Texas. And uh, you have been blessed and a blessing. You've been a blessing and blessed to see God multiplying congregations down here in a way that we haven't seen in our region, uh, kind of near Kansas City for a while. So uh, we, we're grateful. And I just give that remark. I will say one more thing. When I uh, spoke to Dave, uh, Elder Dave, yesterday on the phone, uh, I missed the initial call and I saw his name there on my phone and I, my body shuddered a little bit because usually when Dave calls me, it's a new opportunity, a new responsibility, a new idea that he has for my life, uh, Dave's will for my life. And uh, I should wear a bracelet or something like that. But uh, he was just eager to get this service ready. He didn't ask me to do something new. So praise God for you, brother. We're not here uh, to listen to me so much as to uh, have our ears open to the word of the Lord. Let's begin then. I will read for us Exodus chapter 17. If you would turn to that, please. Uh, we've already read the sort of the New Testament commentary on this, but Exodus 17 gets the historic incident of Massa and Meribah before us. I'll read from this uh, NKJV that's in front of me here on the pulpit. Exodus 17, I believe it's the whole chapter today, the 16 verses. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? The people thirsted there for water. The people complained against Moses and said, Why is it? You have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. 
and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. One of those high action chapters in the Bible that we love. I hope you do. But uh, whether we like it or not, I ask, God, that those he has given ears to hear, let you hear. If you buy into the perspective of Exodus that we especially caught in Exodus chapter 16, God is here sending Israel to school. The simple premise is it would have taken a couple weeks to journey from Goshen up to Canaan and get right into their land of promise, but God had other intentions, at least for about 70 weeks by his beautiful design. He's going to have them in a wilderness setting, it's uh, going to become like a school. And our premise is that a wilderness situation is the best classroom, a venue for a deep kind of learning that we couldn't do in a beautiful air-conditioned place like this today. I, I don't repent that we're here today, but sometimes we learn things more deeply in a wilderness. And not a beautiful camp setting, but a wilderness is a place of desert and lack and wonder how we're going to make it for another day. And this chapter, therefore, serves as a course introduction. The major themes that God is going to teach Israel in coming years, I'd say in the next 39 years, God is going to flesh out and develop some of the themes that are introduced in this chapter. Rephidim is mentioned right off the bat, verse 1. And on a map, it's very close to Mount Horeb. And you know Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. And Israel is going to spend about a year camped around Mount Sinai. So we wonder why God paused just a little bit short, just a couple miles short of that wonderful uh, year-long destination. I suggest that Rephidim is their camping site for a week, all of the content that we're going to read in chapter 17 and also 18. And I want you to notice one thing about Rephidim. Um, it's not Elam. Rephidim is not Elam. That's what you should remember today. Rephidim is a place without any natural water supply. Whereas Elam, in chapter 15, was an oasis, a place of palm trees and springs of water, a beautiful place that they probably wanted to stay there for a long, long time. But here instead, God camps them to a place that wherever you want to drink, your cow and your goat probably want to drink as well, a, a place lacking water. Uh, there's a, I saw just yesterday a, a bottle of water called Smart Water. It's smart to have water, and this doesn't seem very smart unless... God has bigger plans than satisfying your temporary uh, thirst issue. And that gets us back to that idea. This best learning happens in a wilderness situation without uh, natural supply. This is subtle, but please let it be subtle no longer in you. Why are they camping at Rephidim? Those of you who know your scripture, you know already why Israel camps where they do. Something about a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that lifts up and moves and settles. And it tells them, it tells Moses and everybody who could see that, this is where you're to camp for this long. This is where you're to uncamp and move on. This was according, it says in verse 1, according to what we read. They camped at Rephidim according to the commandment or according to the mouth of the Lord. 
The literal term is according to the mouth of the Lord. God said, I want you to camp here, a place lacking natural water supply. And I believe that he did that through this pillar of cloud and fire, directing Moses and Israel where to camp and how long. This camping site, we might call it a situation or a situation. This situation of Israel is exactly what God wanted. And I may be so bold today right now to say no matter what circumstances have brought you to this spot in life, in this place, but also in your circumstances, your situation of life, this also, according to the sovereign hand of God, is according to his direction. You're here for a reason. We talk about intelligent design and our minds almost always go to the creation week and how God ornately made the eyeball and things like that. But there's an intelligent design behind the circumstances of your life. It's beyond my ability to even organize my life that way, let alone 7.3 billion people alive today. God can do that. And this magnifies by this, this perspective of God having an intention here. It magnifies the sin of verses 1 through 7. The sin that is expounded in the Psalms, in Psalm 81 and 95 and also in Hebrews 3. This is clearly a situation where rather than cooperate with the leadership of God, there's a, a rebellion against it in this wilderness. And, and it only magnifies that sin. I don't believe these places were called Massa and Meripah from eternity. I think Moses gave them these names after this incident. And they mean test and quarrel or testing and quarreling. Imagine if you lived in a town, I don't know what Stillwater means, I can guess. Uh, maybe it has something to do with this sermon. Uh, water. But Stillwater, I can guess what that means. But Massa and Meribah, we know what they mean. Testing and quarreling. Would you like to live in a town with those names? And truly, they were testing God. They were testing the power, wisdom, patience, and goodness of God. And you know what? God passed the test. If 110% was possible, God passed this test 110%. But you know, what's the trick here is God is also testing them. They're testing God, but God is testing them. He's testing their faith, their trust, and their joy in the Lord. And how did they do? Did they get a 92%? 110, did they get a 70%, 66.2% barely passing? I said they got a zero. Israel failed this test. And in the same way, the word quarrel is used both directions. Test, they were testing God, God was testing them. But in the term quarrel, they're quarreling against God and God has a quarrel against them. Double significance. The people had a quarrelsome spirit and it's reflected in the way that they're treating Moses. But you know this, if you grumble against the leader that God has given you, you know who you're ultimately quarreling against? Do you know, oh, reformed people, oh, Christian people who have the word of God, whenever you quarrel against even your circumstances of life, the sovereign plan, you're ultimately quarreling against God. It's funny how Moses said, God, why are they quarreling against me? But even Moses in that moment knew they are ultimately quarreling against God. But in the opposite way, God now has a quarrel or a controversy. I would say God has a legal case against his people. That's behind this word for quarrel. God has a, a lawsuit that he is about to press. And it's interesting how even the prophets, hundreds of years later, bring forth this language of God has a suit. And the suit is based on a covenant, a contract, an agreement between two parties. And God is the one who says through his prophets, you are breaking covenant. And I have a, a lawsuit to press. 
I would suggest to you if I was a marriage counselor and I'm looking at the marriage of God in Israel, this is an unbalanced relationship. Wouldn't you say? And I'm not blaming God for the unbalanced relationship. God is perfect. But this relationship between God and Israel, and I might extend the relationship between Christ and his church, is also a, a highly unbalanced relationship. And if I was a poor biblical counselor, I might say, there ought to be a divorce here. <laughs> you ought to go your separate ways and find your best life now. No, no, no let's, let's leave God in charge here. But in this unbalanced relationship, God is ever giving, he's delivering, he's saving, and he's keeping all his promises. And Israel is responding basically the opposite of all of that, the opposite of their duty. This choral language again brings up the issue of justice. This is a word, you, you're a university town. I minister in a university town where the University of Kansas, we play basketball up there, maybe you've heard of that. But uh, good job for you cowboys. I, I try to identify today my cowboy vest. So identify with you, I'm a fake cowboy. But uh, in a university town, we're hearing the language of justice all the time, aren't we? Social justice. Justice is a good word, actually. But justice implies that there's a judge, a judge who is called to rule which party is in the wrong? Which party is breaking covenant? And I don't think it's a mystery here. Between the God and Israel relationship, who's breaking covenant? Who is doing injustice? And which consequences must come? That's a fascinating thing here. This is sin of the first order. The first seven verses is quarreling and grumbling, and it's terrible. It's atrocious. And yet the balance of the chapter is God overflowing with mercy, symbolized with the overflowing of water and then the overflowing of victory, where what's really deserved at this legal case is Israel, in grumbling against Moses and against me, I should kill you now. And instead, God sustains them. Let's talk about the grumble just a little bit more. The same dynamics have been going on since ex about Exodus chapter 4. Whenever Israel is grumbling, and this whole book of the Bible, Exodus, could be called the book of grumbling, if not the, the book of uh, Exodus or, or coming out of a slavery situation. But there's so much grumbling here, and it's always twofold. They exaggerate their present lack. That is, they are doubting God's wisdom and care in this moment. And then their fanciful minds, they, they are positive about one thing, how wonderful they used to have it. Now, I want you to think like a slave for a second. Remember your days when you were enslaved by the taskmasters of Egypt? Remember those days? No, none of us remember those days. But these people, it was just five weeks ago, they were under the whip and the scourge and not even having straw for their bricks and it just starving to death and it just treated like animals. And yet, if you would only take from Exodus 4 on the, re the recollections about the good old days, you'd think it was a paradise. Oh, leeks and onions and garlic water and meat pots and how Pharaoh loved us so well compared to how God is torturing and killing us in the wilderness. Like, what is wrong with these people? They've got it exactly opposite. And I'm not here to beat up Israel, ancient Israel especially. I'm here to preach to you. It's like our grumbles are often an exaggeration of our present lack and our exaggeration of our good old days. And for these people, it would be our good old days under another master. And so for you, it would be back when I was in the world, back when I had another master, maybe Satan, my father. Oh, Satan was so good to me compared to God. I hope in this holy place, this set apart, wonderful place, we would say that's foolish of a first order. But next time you are prompted to grumble, 
and I've got a four-hour trip on the way home today, I will probably come to a red light that lasts too long. I probably will. And I will think, how wonderful I... I caution myself and I caution you. Oh, grumblers, let's not be that way anymore. I want you to see, uh, finally, in terms of this grumbling, it doesn't just become an issue of the heart, this uh, grumbling in the heart. It becomes an issue of the mouth. And Moses, I believe he's being realistic here. He says, God, they are trying to kill me. He has reasons to believe that they're going to do more than words. Our grumbling attitude is going to lead to sins of the hand, sins of the high hand. And apart from God's intervention here and provision of water and victory, I believe that Moses would have been stoned to death. Let me say it clearly. Moses was the assigned mediator from God for these people, and they are ready to kill him. Imagine killing your mediator. Imagine how wicked would people have to be to take the one mediator that God has given to you and to destroy him. Did this ever happen in history, actually? That humanity uh, was sent the mediator, and instead of welcoming, receiving, and recognizing him, we destroyed him, maybe even putting him on a, a cross. Oh, yes, that's, that is what we did. My friends, God, the God of Israel has every right to declare that his gracious covenant is officially broken five weeks into his miraculous deliverance. Due to the transgression of Israel, the covenant is null and void. So in a, in a way, a, a righteous judge would be able to say this party broke covenant. So you, the innocent party, are free from your promises. You may go and enter into new unions and contracts. You no longer owe these rebellious people anything. And instead, as we said, the bulk of the chapter is about God's faithfulness and his absolute mercy, giving miraculous love to the undeserving and the counter-deserving. God shows mercy simply to forgive the inside and outside rebellion of words and what would have come into their hands with the murder of their mediator. He would have been wonderfully merciful just to get them back to level. Instead, God addresses the need. He knows what is sparking their grumbling. They want some water. Now, God was always going to give them water. Uh, in his time, he wasn't going to starve them to death there in that place, but they couldn't wait, so they sinned. And God brought water out of a rock. This time, I want you to notice, God did command Moses to strike the rock. Notice that. There's another incident that's more famous in Moses' career where he strikes a rock and he wasn't supposed to. That got him in trouble. But this is one of those many times that God brought miracle water out of the ground or out of a rock. God can do that. God works this sign and wonder. Notice you know, God could have snapped his fingers uh, symbolically and caused uh, bubbling brooks to come wherever. But he used Moses. Isn't that clear? God, who knows that Moses' leadership and his mediatorship is being questioned here, and God worked this miracle through the staff and rod and person of Moses. Why do you suppose God did that? I think Moses is being despised by this people and God lifts him up in the eyes of the people to say, I'm going to use this man to be a blessing to you. I'm sure Moses, I hope Moses later that evening would say, thank you, God. In many ways you could have worked out this miracle of water, but you used me and thank you for that, holding him up in higher esteem. And then comes the naming of the place. And so if you are interested in, uh, I didn't know you had a sermon discussion or it's called a, a roast preacher for after lunch 
or something like that. But uh, whether I can be part of that or not, I would urge you to think about wilderness lesson number one. And there's just five. And you're thinking, it took him 15 minutes to get to first point. Oh, boy. Uh, wilderness lesson number five is don't be like this people. We get that especially from the Psalms and from Hebrews. Don't be like this people. And you might develop in your review, what does that mean? What, what's wrong with this people that we shouldn't be like them? Then we get to the military victory over Amalek in verses 8 through 13. And I want you to consider just for a moment, what's the greater miracle in this chapter? Is it miracle water from a rock or military victory by untrained refugees? Don't think too little of the military victory. These people had been slaves for hundreds of years. I, I promise you they had no weapons compared to the weapons of Amalek. They had no time to train. They had no official army. But it, God provides uh, a solution for their thirst, and God provides a solution for their need for victory. And in both cases, notice he used means. You know, God often could just snap fingers or speak a word, and we know God speaks a word and it's done. He can do that. But in both these cases, he used means. For their thirst, for example, he used Moses. He used a staff or rod. He used the rock. He used the striking action. And here comes real physical water leading to the satisfaction of one of our absolute needs for physical life. And the issue of the victory. God, again, uses Moses. He uses the staff or the rod. He uses prayer. He uses two other men, actually more, Aaron and Hur. He also uses Joshua and an army. And that leads to a satisfaction of their safety and security. In both cases, like five different means, God organizes together to bring about his miraculous provision. Now, I know that we don't have a whole lot about the shepherd, God being the shepherd in this chapter, but if you have your eyes open, what is God doing here? He's shepherding his people through the wilderness. All of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is God is our shepherd. Maybe you thought we had to wait till Psalm 23 or John 10 to get that theme of the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. But he's illustrating it here. And you know some things, if you were a real shepherd, you would know that sheep do not do well when they're thirsty and sheep do not do well when they're terrorized. That is, they're afraid of enemies who are all around them. They don't thrive. They, they don't reproduce. They don't pr produce good wool or milk or whatever it is we're looking for sheep and goats to do. But God is satisfying their need of physical provision of water, and he's providing their need for physical safety. This is wilderness lesson number two. Number one, again, don't be like this people. Second, God is shepherding his people here very well. The good shepherd knows the needs of the silly sheep, and he is ahead of the game. He knows what they need before they know what they need. Before they're even going to ask for their specific need, he's going to address that. Let's think about Amalek for a second. Are you familiar with this people? They don't come out of nowhere. Amalek is connected to Esau. You don't have time to get back into the ancient story of Esau, but uh, Amalek was the grandson, a grandson of Esau, way back in Genesis 36. This is a real people, but in that they are connected to Esau, they symbolize something. And all of scripture has Esau as a very strong symbol for you. Don't make your belly your God in, in terms of your belly, your lusts. I want this. I demand this. I must have this. And Amalek becomes this counter symbol. Israel, you're not to be like Amalek. And God shows his vengeance, his wrath. Pastor Parnell is preaching this morning in Lawrence on Wrath and vengeance belongs to the Lord. But God shows his wrath and vengeance on Amalek here, really on Esau, that 
worldly mindset that I must have what I want when I want. Well, the first seven verses of this chapter, who was like that? Israel. Really, Israel's just like Amalek. Our God is our belly. I want this, I demand this, and I will get it. I will murder you if you don't give me that. That's Israel. And God shows in his treatment of Amalek what our sins deserve, what our uh, fleshly bellies deserve from God is the wrath of God. They, Israel gets something much better, but Amalek gets what they deserve here. Amalek, Esau, a strong symbol of sin and covenant breaking and the consequences of our unbelief. It, it delayed a while, 400 years after Esau. That's where we are now, 400 years. And God uh, was patient with this people. But uh, Esau's commitment to his belly and his lusts continued to impact his children to the 10th generation, 400 years, approximately 10 biblical generations. Uh, friends, just think about this. If, if you get to have 10 generations, do you want them to be blessed or cursed? If you got to stand on a, a mountaintop and look at the 10 generations after you, if God, if Jesus tarries in his return, do you want them to be blessed or cursed? And I say, Esau's commitment to his belly first ended up cursing his descendants 400 years later. Let's not be like that. Who is this Joshua, by the way? If you are a, a student of the word, you would recognize that Exodus 17, 9 is the first occurrence of this guy, Joshua, which where we meet him. He's mentioned only 222 times in the Bible, and this is the first occurrence of the word and name of Joshua. So let's get a little background. He's Moses' right-hand man. He will become that. I suggest he's about 40 years of age compared to Moses being 80. We know because uh, we have the wholeness of scripture. Uh, we know that God 40 years later is gonna transfer Israel's shepherding to this understudy. And I, I suggest to you that's a long time to be in the second chair. 40 years as the vice president, waiting for the president to, uh, to move off to greener pastures. That's like waiting, 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 but never do we see Joshua champing at the bit. In fact, when he finally gets to that 80 years of age or so, and Moses says, I've got to die on the mountain now. You're not ready. So he has a humble spirit. I love that. But at this point, with his comparative advantage of youthful vigor, Joshua becomes the acting warrior and general for Israel. Are you familiar with Gideon's impossible task some generations later? The impossible task to defeat tens of to defeat tens of thousands through 300 warriors. That's a miracle. And I would suggest that this is something equivalent. Ponder what Joshua's called to handle here, basically to organize exhausted, weaponless refugees to fight a wilderness army that's got the advantage of they know the territory, they know the hillsides. Everything is in Amalek's advantage, but Joshua has to go do this. And I want you to look at verse 10. It's subtle but I don't want it to be subtle for you any longer. <laughs> Maybe you highlight, if you highlight your Bible or if you stitch pillows or make plaques behind your couch, this is what Joshua did as Moses told him. Pause. Wow. Didn't see that coming. What race is Joshua from? The race of Israel. What have we seen Israel doing for the first seven verses? Israel's doing everything but what God tells them. But here's somebody Joshua is going to do as doing what Moses told him. Uh, you're wise people. You know, they didn't call it. Joshua's parents didn't name him Joshua. They named him 
Yeshua. That's what they called him. They didn't call him Joshua. That's our anglicized version. They called him Yeshua. Have you heard the word Yeshua before? I think you have. We're in a wider Christian world where some people call your Savior and mine, Jesus Christ, Jesus, is Yeshua, Messiah. This Yeshua did as his leader told him. What a refreshing oasis at Rephidim. In a desert place, we have one person who hears what he's supposed to do and says, I will do it. I think the father has an attitude about this. The father, God, would say about him, this is my son. I'm pleased with them. And I'm pleased with this cooperation. This, I'm pleased with his willingness to hear me and then to do it. What displeases me, God would say, is what I saw at Massa and Meribah. Imagine compliance the way it should be. How simple Israel's entire story might be if for a thousand years the people of Israel did as they were told by Moses, then Joshua, then the judges and the kings, but instead anything but that. This is also a school for Joshua. I'm going to end with this because this is a long enough sermon and I, you very wisely put a clock back there so a attentive guy like me can see that I prepared too much for today and I don't want to overfeed the sheep. But uh, what is, uh, in verse 9, this rod or this staff? Is there a description of it? The powerful object in the hands of Moses is the staff of God. I thought it was Moses' staff. How many movies have you seen, cartoons or otherwise, about this? Or how many times have you heard the story and you would call it Moses' rod, Moses' staff, but... Moses is figuring something out here. It's not me. And it's ultimately not my staff. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. This staff belongs to God. And I believe this is the staff that's going to come into the hands of a guy named Joshua. 40 years later, it's the staff of God. This reminds us that from him, and through him, and to him are all things. The power belongs to God. Let me wrap this up to say, you know, the beautiful incident of Aaron and her and Moses and his hands and Joshua down there. And we can get a little confused with all the action in the victory over Amalek here that, okay, um, the spiritually minded people have to do what the spiritually minded people do. That's they pray. And the action Christians have to go down there and actually fight the fight and win the war and these things together. And God's in there somewhere. But I want you to see, really, God wins this victory. It's all a miracle. And yet, what a what an encouraging thing that God, who often uses means to work out his thing, he, he uses us. He doesn't use abuse. That's, that was Pharaoh. When they are in their right minds, they would remember that Pharaoh wasn't their lover, their wonderful leader who gave them meat pots and everything else. No, he abused them. But God uses us and his kingdom purposes in a way that he should get all the glory. We should say at the end of our victories, even if hours and blood and tears were in it, we say, God did it. God did it. I hope all Israel at the end of this chapter could take a pause and say, you know, we were wrong. We were wrong to complain against God. We were wrong to assume that uh, we know better what our cattle needs than God does. We know better what we need than God does. We know the kind of leader. We need a leader better than Moses because Moses camped us in a desert. <laughs> Why can't we go back to Elam? You idiots, they would say, but we should... 
pause here and say, oh, God, forgive our stubborn, rebellious hearts. This is what God elicits from his people. He didn't elicit this from Amalek. I would assume that Amalek as a people had a, a nature where their God was their belly or their belly was their God, just like their great, great grandfather. And that we cannot be like that. God is our father. We should have his glory in mind. Uh, not a big fan of Christian art all the time. But I want you to know that one of the earliest depictions in the early Christian church in the persecuted times, there are paintings even in uh, uh, the catacombs, uh, the, the tomb areas, where Jesus Christ would be depicted sometimes with a sheep over his, his neck. Other times, uh, Jesus would be depicted as Noah's Ark. Isn't that funny? It's not a picture of a person, but Noah's Ark. And Jesus is the one who lifts us up above the judgment of the world. But I think you know this. This is a common picture of, of Jesus. Jesus with his hands lifted up. I'm going to do this at the end of the service. It's called a benediction. But did we read in Exodus 17, Moses in a moment like this? What was, what was Moses doing when he had his hands lifted up? He was praying calling out to God, oh God, give victory to your people. And Moses is, is a good mediator, but you know, his arms failed him. He was 80. <laughs> I promise if I did this for 10 minutes, I would need your help if I wanted to do half an hour, but he did all day. And so they put a rock under him and I don't know exactly how it looked, but he had helpers. This is pretty cool. But it's interesting in the depictions of Jesus Christ and the nickname for these pictures is Christus Victor. We're using some Special terms here today. Yeshua. You know. Christus Victor. What does that mean? Christ the winner. Christ the victor. And who's holding up Christ's hands in these depictions? Nobody. Nobody. Jesus Christ. And, and what's he, what is Jesus doing right now, by the way? Could you say, well, he's serving in the eternal tabernacle. That's good. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. But in another sense, Jesus Christ right now has his hands up and he's doing what Moses was doing. Oh God, oh Father, give our people your victory, our victory. And yet Jesus through his spirit is down there on the battleground too. Yeshua, Jesus is the Moses figure, but he's also the Joshua figure. And the very name says so. He's fighting the fight through the army that's listening to him. He's doing as the father told, isn't this beautiful? This is not uh, what could have been the most discouraging chapter so far in Exodus is, oh, these people, why can't they get it? Yes, don't be like them, but let's be like Moses. Let's be like Joshua. Let's be like Christ. And let's look to Christ, the victor who has won the victory already, and he's implementing the consequences of that, even in Stillwater, even in Lawrence, even in Oklahoma City, even in Texas, even in every place where his name should go. Amen? Amen. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time we could dedicate to looking at this history chapter. I thank you that at the very last verses, you commanded Moses to write this down. Write this down. And because you commanded him to write it down, we have it. The first military victory of this ragtag bunch of refugees in the wilderness
and we know how it is they won. There's no question in our minds that you did this, O oh Lord. And that's supposed to stick in the minds of Israel for the rest of the journey, the rest of their life as a nation, and certainly our life as a church. How do we win the victory? Calling out to God, oh God, win the war and use us as you will. I pray that you would do that for each person here. And may we also serve as the Aaron and her for one another. When we flag and fail in our prayers and our labors, may we pick up each other's arms so we might enjoy the victory together. This much we pray in the name of Jesus, our victor. Amen. Would you turn now in the book of Psalms for worship, the blue Psalter to Psalm 95C. This is also one of those do not be. So it's, it's tough that we're now going back to the don't be like this people, but that's okay. Just leaves that memory and taste in your mind and we'll have a good benediction at the close. So please stand to sing Psalm 95C. Remain standing for the benediction and then there's a one stanza doxology at the close. <laughs> 